Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight, Matt Welch, editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine, deconstructs Republican presidential candidate John McCain. Drawing upon the themes in his book, McCain, The Myth of a Maverick, Welch argues that the Arizona senator is a master at utilizing the press and that despite its neoconservative implications, his national greatness agenda has received no scrutiny from the press. Welch also explores the candidate's deep roots in the United States Navy. Recorded May 15th before a live audience at the Los Angeles Central Library as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Matt Welch. Uh, it's our first trip back to L.A. since regrettably moving to the East Coast five months ago. And if I could just give you a little bit of uh, East Coast intel, they all tell you about, you know, oh, the cherry blossoms are so great in Washington and stuff. My God, the jacarandas in this place, this entire town is purple. I'd like to, since this is a political book and whatnot, I'd like to sort of take the political tension out of the room just a little bit by declaring my various affiliations, biases, motives, and etc. I am not a Democrat. I don't root for Democrats. I am equally not a Republican. I don't root and rarely vote except maybe in California sometimes for Republicans. I don't and I never really have belonged to any political team. I find you all to be sort of interesting, you know, from the outside to see what it is that you do and think about. I tend to view politics kind of like someone in the front row of a NASCAR race. It's exciting and thrilling, but you kind of, more than anything else, don't want to get killed. I used to, back in the, uh, in the old days, describe myself, my own politics, as an Economist magazine-style liberal, whatever that meant. Then uh, Brian Anderson, a great guy from the uh, City Journal in New York, wrote a book called South Park Conservatives, in which he described my politics as an Economist magazine-style conservative liberal. Think about it. <laughs> so I realized that uh, these uh, hyphens were getting almost as absurd as the first English language newspaper in post-communist East Bloc and etc. This book came out when I was still working at the LA Times. I think in the intro of it, in the section in which I was doing what I'm doing right here, I described myself as a Central Europe-style uh, liberal, which basically means you hate communism and you hang out with a bunch of derelict rock musicians. I have been pleased to note that Every single one of my Central European friends who've read the book and were happy to get a little shout-out at the beginning, they've all remarked that, oh, it's you know, a great book, and after reading it, I really hope McCain wins. Um, so that's, uh, I'm doing something right. I am now, as Gregory pointed out, the editor of Reason Magazine. We all know Reason Magazine? Yes. It's the uh, cultural and political Bible for libertarians. It's been around for 40 years. Uh, May 68 is when it started. And it's uh, based right here in West L.A., which not everyone really realizes. Uh, so if you're looking for a comprehensible one-word term to describe my incomprehensible and insupportable politics, libertarian is probably closer than anything else. Libertarians' basic take on the world is that they think the government should do what the government should do, and it shouldn't do anything else, more or less. So, for instance, I personally am not the world's biggest fan of, let's say, City Hall trying to zone fast food restaurants out of South L.A. or telling homeowners that they can only use half of their lot because they don't like the way that McMansions look. Libertarians look at politicians and ask what does he or she think about the proper role of government. It just so happened in the case of John McCain, uniquely that was the right question to ask. Uh, I'm only going on at, uh, at this at uh, kind of great and embarrassing length, not only because I love to talk about myself, but also because I think in a lot of today's political discourse, and especially as it concerns national politics, in the media literacy that we all require to kind of pick through what's, who's telling you what, it's based on the sort of real and imagined motivations of the people doing the writing. And I think it's uh, incumbent upon us as journalists, and especially opinion journalists above all, which I think is a misunderstood category. A lot of people 
I think, tend to view opinion journalism as kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. You no longer have to really concern yourself with issues of the truth and, and giving the best support of your opponent's arguments. It's not that at all. I think it's important to engage in the best of the ideas of the people that you're talking to. And the onus is on us to sort of transparently describe our own motivations. Throat thus cleared. I came to John McCain not because I wanted to uh, derail his political ambitions in any way or even because I wanted to write a book uh, about him. I came to him because back in uh, 2000, I would have uh, voted for him. How many people would have voted for him or did vote for him in 2000? Man, tough crowd. Strange but true, uh, but true factoid. McCain didn't win uh, California in the 2000 Republican primaries. People sort of tend to think that he might have because he's mavericky and semi-liberal on something or other. But uh, Bush stomped him like a grape here, as he did in New York. And if McCain would have won California and New York, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation today. Like many Americans and like many, 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 many journalists, uh, I was attracted to McCain for his sort of independent streak, his putting the country above political party for calling the religious right agents of intolerance. We love that kind of stuff. So in uh, 2004, 2005, we took a vacation out of Mexico and I, I grabbed his books, including this cover-torn book here called uh, Worth the Fighting For, his political memoir from 2002, which is a terrific book, and Faith of My Fathers, which is a classic, talking about his Vietnam experience. And I just took it to try to figure out what what this guy has kind of strangely difficult to understand politics. He's hard to predict. Who is he? I was positively predisposed toward him. What I found in the books was at turns very delightful, especially the first half of Faith in My Fathers, which is all about how he's chasing the maximum number of booze and broad <laughs> instead of uh, actually doing his, uh, his work in any meaningful way. I also found it quite worrying, uh, especially as regards his philosophy of governance, which stated over and over again, and you'll see in his campaign speeches and in all of his writings, it is to use the federal government as a means to restore your faith in the federal government, to restore your faith in the concept of national greatness, of America being the shining city on the hill. At the same time, I also found things in the book that were frankly shocking and I didn't really know what to do with, and that was that on nearly every page you see some kind of language, some notional, some framing that is nearly identical to the same sort of language and framing that you will see in the literature of 12-step recovery programs. And we will leave aside for the moment why I would be familiar with what that language (laughs) would be. But suffice to say, it was alarming and, and, and just interesting. I didn't know what to do with the information. I didn't know if he had any history or family history with alcoholism and 12-step. I found out much later that he did, but uh, I didn't know what to do with it. So it was intriguing. I went and I read all of his five books, which I heartily encourage at least political journalists to do. The rest of you, please read those two that I mentioned before because they're pretty interesting And I developed a sort of semi-crackpot theory of how this all plays out in uh, the developing of uh, McCain's seemingly difficult-to-understand ideology and philosophy of governance. I approached Nick Goldberg of the LA Times and said, I want to write this piece. Wrote it in November 2006, and the reaction that I received from it was as interesting, voluminous, and hysterical as anything that I have ever written in my life. Uh, So I thought, hey, maybe I'm onto something. Let's turn this into a book. That is the reason why I wrote the book, not to bum out John McCain, not to make uh, you know Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama happy in any single way. So if Brady Westwater is here uh, or anyone uh, like him, please don't ask me, yeah, but what about Barack? I'm not trying to score points for any particular political team. So I want to take another poll. I don't know how many of you are following the news uh, just today, but uh, how many of you heard today that McCain announced that he's setting some kind of timetable or thinking about getting rid of troops from Iraq in 2013? Okay, most of you. Oh, How many of you, and uh, at home that was the majority, uh, how many of you also heard today that he intends to lead a NATO invasion of Sudan to halt the genocide in Darfur? This is an object lesson in uh, media bias and uh, media framing, which is a main theme of my book. In fact, today he did not say any such thing that he has plans to remove U.S. combat troops from Iraq by 2013. He did not. He'll even admit that he did not. 
What he said was he portrayed a bunch of wonderful things that he can imagine after four years of the first McCain administration. Osama bin Laden will be captured. There will be no more farm subsidies. There will be no more earmarks in bills. In other words, it was beautiful fantasy. But there was no sort of roadmap on how to get there, especially as regards Iraq. He was just uh, portraying nice things that he would love to see. Yet, despite that, uh, the uh, headlines that you saw today, New York Times, McCain sets a date. AFP, troops home from Iraq by 2013, McCain. Bloomberg, McCain says he would seek to end Iraq war by 2013. This is all of it crap. McCain and his campaign know full well what they're doing. And it's the same thing that they did about uh, maybe a couple hundred yards from here in March with his major blowout speech about foreign policy. Uh, What they're doing is they're taking advantage of the enormous goodwill and benefit of the doubt that independents and especially journalists give to him. Even when he says or espouses something that they violently disagree with, there is a general sense that John McCain's heart is in the right place, at least. And he's maybe saying what he needs to say in order to win an election among the knuckle-dragging Republican troglodytes, etc. <laughs> McCain's single biggest challenge, I'm, that's not my point of view, I'm saying from the point of view of other people, uh, necessarily. Uh, his single biggest challenge in this election, he has two, but one of them is to maintain his rather amazing support among anti-war Democrats and independents without ever really letting on and letting them or admitting to them in any meaningful way that he was the neoconservative candidate against George W. Bush in 1999 and 2000, that he is probably the most influential interventionist and has been of the last 10 to 12 years in the Senate and in national politics. Before we get into his widely misunderstood foreign policy views, which is the bulk of what I'll talk about before we um, get into some questions, I'd like to briefly expand on this interesting relationship that he has with the media. He has been, in my judgment, and I have yet to hear anything that would uh, refute this, probably the uh, single biggest beneficiary of more flattering press coverage than any Republican politician of the last 20 years. Is there anyone else who would even come close? Okay, I win. You're listening to Matt Welch, Editor-in-Chief for Reason Magazine, in a talk he calls Deconstructing McCain. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Next time on Day to Day, can a dog prevent a clog? California wildlife workers hope so. They've hired Iggy, the retriever, to sniff out microscopic mollusks on the sides of boats. They've been plugging up the state's waterways. It's going to ruin the fishery. It's going to cause a tremendous stink, and it's going to cost millions in damage. How one canine is taking a bite out of slime. Good check. Good Next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. Next time on The World, China's urban explosion. Villages have mushroomed into megacities nearly overnight, and it's all about money. There's one Chinese saying, 人往高处走,水往低处流. Everyone wants to be a rich guy, right? Everyone wants to improve their life. China's massive migration. Our series begins on the next edition of The World. Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. You can now get KPCC and NPR News on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org where you'll find information on NPR Mobile from KPCC. Oh, and we're also still here at 89.3. KPCC's membership department has cleaned house. They found books, CDs, and some cool KPCC logo items, and even a couple of tote bags. And they're on sale. Well, on sale in a manner of speaking. Go to kpcc.org and become a member now. You can choose from all that stuff at reduced membership amounts. Join today at kpcc.org. And thanks. 
Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now, it's back to Matt Welch, editor-in-chief for Reason Magazine, in a talk he calls Deconstructing McCain. Every day you will see, if you look, and I do because I have to, examples of McCain being given this uh, amazing benefit of the doubt, that his heart is in the right place, that no matter what you know, how much he flips, how much he flops, he's basically on our side. This cycle began largely in the mid-1990s. I'll read you a quote from Michael Lewis, great, wonderful journalist, author of Moneyball, which is a terrific book. In 1996 and 1995, Michael Lewis was sent around by the New Republic to author a sort of diary on the campaign trail, and he followed Bob Dole around a lot, and McCain was, you know, Bob Dole's kind of right-hand man, helping out his friend who he knew he was going to lose. This is one of the first quotes I put in my book here. The shock, this is 1996, uh, September 30th, and he's hanging out in an uh, airport, uh, I think Reagan National, or actually maybe some like Kansas City airport. Uh, do they have airports in Kansas City? Of, uh, just kidding. <laughs> he's uh, encountering McCain, and McCain has no handlers, nobody picking up his bags. He's just sitting there, you know, whistling and waiting for his bags. The shock of finding a Republican outside the Democratic convention is followed by a disturbingly pleasant sensation. I'm beginning to understand the war that must occur inside a 14-year-old boy who discovers he is more sexually attracted to boys than to girls. The longer I hang around McCain, the harder it is to fight the feeling that just maybe, just maybe, I'm Republican. (laughs) Tell me about it. That is not an outlier. There were, the New Republic was probably the single biggest font of all that. Charles Lane was writing mash notes to him in 1999. Uh, even you know, if you uh, watch Chris Matthews' uh, a wonderful show every uh, day, and, and you should read that profile on him if any of you haven't. It's, it's incredible. And I think New York Times Magazine or something. Matthews talked about in 2007, like, the worst part of my job is imagining that John McCain might lose. There was this feeling that uh, journalists, and especially liberal journalists, had in the 1990s and 2000s of, my God, here is a Republican. I, first of all, don't know or like Republicans uh, too much. And second of all, it's very rare to encounter uh, a, a genuine bona fide war hero in our midst who sort of still treats me, the creepy liberal uh, journalist, as a, as a fellow human being. This is actually uh, McCain's milieu. He famously has described the press as his base. He grew up on, uh, largely on Capitol Hill. Early in his life, he was around places like Long Beach. He was a Navy brat until around the age of 10. Then he settled around the Beltway and went to a series of prep schools and boarding schools, while his father, who was a four-star admiral in the U.S. Navy, was either at sea or working on Capitol Hill, giving lectures or working as the Navy's liaison to the Senate. His mother, who's an heiress of an oil fortune that moved from Oklahoma to Pasadena, at some point she would always give sort of a salon on Capitol Hill. He grew up hanging around national journalists, historians, generals, fancy people. Before he even uh, was shot down over Vietnam, one of his best friends was the legendary New York Times correspondent Johnny Apple. R.W. Apple Jr. They used to go in R&R together in Saigon. This has been his milieu. One of the many reasons why conservatives distrust John McCain is that they can intuit accurately that he doesn't come from where they do. He's not really one of them. In uh, the Keating Five scandal, there's many aspects to McCain's relationship with the press and why it's turned out well for him. Probably the great moment the light went off in his head was during the Keating Five scandal. I won't bore you with the Keating Five scandal because it's boring. But suffice it to say that McCain was involved in a scandal, etc., having to do with the savings and loans crisis, and for a while his political career was threatened. He decided one day in Arizona, I think in 1990, 1991, in, at the depths of this, and he's described this as the worst period of his life, worse than his POW experience, which is an interesting psychological thing to consider because people had questioned his honor, and he has this big sense of honor. So in the middle of this experience, he decides, okay, the hell with it. I'm going to hold a press conference, and I will not stop yapping until they run out of questions. And he gave a two-hour press conference and just, like, emptied the notebook. Here you go. Here's a document. I'll answer every question. Lo and behold, what happens? The next day and the day after, 
people are writing kind of nicer stuff about John McCain. Since that moment, he has had held that as his default strategy, a media strategy. Don't surround himself with handlers. Come on the bus, on the record all the time, you know, and let's see what happens. And what happens is people like me love that access. It's uh, completely rare. There's a, a great story written about um, McCain's foreign policy by uh, John Judas of the New Republic. Feel free to write any of this stuff down. Uh, October 2006, it's called Neo-McCain. It basically talks about uh, McCain's foreign policy development and where it uh, hinged in various moments. It's incredible. It's really probably the best single piece of journalism. There's another one that's coming out this Sunday in New York Times Magazine by Matt Bai, which is also very interesting. But Neo-McCain is probably the single biggest thing to sort of talk about this overlap between John McCain and all the neoconservatives and national greatness conservatives in the Weekly Standard camp and various data points, etc. 6,000 words of great journalism. The lead is, I've always loved John McCain ever since the first day I called him up for a profile I was writing on Fred Thompson, uh, and he picked up the phone himself, and he invited me in his office, and he talked to me without any handlers. Wow, what a great guy. 5,700 words of damning detail about his foreign policy, depending on if, whether you agree or disagree with his foreign policy. But from John Judas's point of view, damning detail about John McCain's foreign policy. Last 200 words. McCain, will he change his mind, you know, and, and like come out of his uh, spiral on Iraq? And uh, maybe he will because, you know, he's such a nice guy and he's changed his mind in the past. It's a very, very valuable bank, as uh, the press critic Jay Rosen has uh, put it. McCain has a lot of deposits in the bank of credibility with, uh, with the media. So you have this concept of, and also I should point out, in the 1970s and 80s and uh, on throughout his life, McCain has this very interesting effect on people of healing Vietnam somehow. One of the most important things that he discovered upon coming back from uh, Vietnam in 1973, the country was riven apart and he felt like, you know, we'd lost our sense of faith in ourselves. He was very traumatized by what was happening in the country. He hung out with his best friends who were largely liberals. Gary Hart is, was the best man at his wedding. There's a great scene in uh, Bob Timberg's book on uh, John McCain, An American Odyssey, that came out in 1999, where McCain, who was then the liaison to the Senate for the Navy, just like his father had been, they're on a, an overseas flight to Japan or some damn place, and one by one, liberal 1974-class Democratic senators kind of trudge up to the front of the plane or the back of the plane, wherever he was, and they sort of sit down and basically confess their own feeling of guilt of maybe going too far in their protesting of Vietnam, and McCain sort of gave them a, a benediction. He's always had this effect on people. He forgave Jane Fonda. He famously forgave various people who were, you know, people who came out, peace activists, to, uh, to visit with POWs and even sort of uh, make, a, make a life harder for POWs back there. He's forgiven them too. It's a very magnanimous spirit of his, but at the same time, he has the same effect on journalists. So, of all of this, so you have a guy who's got a pretty splashy record that takes a long time to recite. You know, you got a, that prisoner of war thing, you got the Straight Talk Express, you got McCain Feingold. He's also, right around 98, 99, he's starting to pick up a lot of issues that journalists love. Campaign finance reform, chief among them, but also he went after big tobacco and other uh, types of things. So, these things all combine to form this incredible bank. And I thought that uh, we'd seen the sort of end of this uh, up until he gave a speech in L.A. Before that, during the primary season, he was endorsed by uh, not just uh, the Los Angeles Times. Shocker, that one. <laughs> uh, but also the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, the Boston Globe, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Detroit News, the Detroit Free Press. I think basically every newspaper in California. It's remarkable. And in most of them, you, had, you would have some line like, well, we disagree with him about the war and foreign policy uh, and uh, you know, uh, social issues and uh, abortion and this, and this kind of stuff. Actually, just to bite the hand that used to feed me, there was a... Um, in the LA Times editorial uh, endorsing John McCain in the primary, I'm sure in the, uh, I'm not sure that he'll win in the in the November, but they name checked him for he supported cap and trade systems that could reduce greenhouse gases, and he has stayed that course despite criticism from fellow Republicans. It's a decent reason, unless 
you're a jerk like me, and you used to work for that editorial page, and you think, huh, Dan Turner doesn't like cap-and-trade systems. In uh, May of 2007, the same editorial board weighed in very smartly against cap-and-trade, saying it doesn't work, it's never worked anywhere, it's not going to work. So the point being that you can give him credit for backing a position you yourself don't share because he's shouting down Republicans whose knuckles are dragging on the ground. I had thought that this had sort of ended and that it would be finished by the time we'd get around to the general election. After all, if you have to choose between Mitt Romney, for crying out loud, or Mike Huckabee or John McCain, you know, obviously you go to McCain. But, in fact, this sort of uh, bank of love uh, for McCain and in the, its residual effects of believing that his heart is in the right place has stuck with us and has stuck with us uh, particularly as people describe his foreign policy, which will be, I think, the main uh, issue in the campaign and the thing that I'm probably more interested in. He gave a speech at the Los Angeles World Affairs Council in which he had been telegraphing to reporters for five, ten days before, this is the speech where I show that I'm not like George W. Bush. Okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be different, I'm going to be more moderate, and all this kind of stuff. And sure enough, the next day, David Broder, the dean of Washington something or other, said, you know, uh, this, is, uh, this is going to be a, a brand new foreign policy. Um, the Bush era is over. David Brooks said that anyone who thinks that McCain is another Bush doesn't understand who he is. And yet in the same speech, he talked about kicking Russia out of the G8, which would be a sort of exquisitely pointless act of uh, bellicosity. I wouldn't have admitted Russia to begin with in the G8, but once they're there, it's not going to be very useful. He talked about being much more belligerent towards China than any American president has been. And yet, not only do we see in your various David Broder columns and such descriptions of this, but in the Washington Post news pages itself, it said some people have described John McCain's foreign policy as being sort of an all-Navy swagger cowboy type, but the record is more nuanced than all of that. They didn't actually quote from any of the record or quote from any of the nuance. So we're stuck with this. And just today, we uh, have seen this in the uh, piece that by Matt By in the New York Times Magazine, McCain before the first question is uh, asked, says, look, I'm an Eisenhower Republican. I'm a moderate. I can't believe people are calling me a neocon. It's very irritating. Henry Kissinger is on my speed dial. I talk to him all the time. I, I don't know why that's going to redound to his credit, but in this, uh, in this uh, context, Henry Kissinger is seen as a realist, whereas McCain is a neoconservative sort of idealist. In fact, McCain at the L.A. speech coined the new term of realistic idealist, which is a really great way to square the circle. Now, why is he doing this? He's doing this because he won the primary elections based on the anti-war vote. As crazy as that sounds, it's actually true. If you look at the exit polls in the three early primary states in which he sealed the deal, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and especially Florida, if you look at people They're asked the question, how do you primarily identify yourself, Republican, Democrat, Independent, or other? Among the people who self-identified as Republican, he never won, not even in the three states that he won. And one of those, or two of those, or one, Florida, was a closed primary. He lost by a point to Romney in Florida among Republicans, so uh, self-described. He lost to Huckabee in South Carolina. He lost to Romney again in New Hampshire. So where was he getting the support? Same exit polls, asked some other questions. How would you describe your feelings at George W. Bush? People who describe themselves as angry at George W. Bush. Not like, "Ah, I don't like it, but angry. They voted for McCain by 40 to 15 over anybody else, over Ron Paul, generally speaking, or sometimes uh, other uh, candidates. People who describe themselves as hating the war were voting to McCain in numbers of two to one. I think it's because he has this reservoir of goodwill and that his own foreign policy and history is not adequately understood. What is that history? As I mentioned before, his father was a four-star admiral in the U.S. Navy. You know, interesting, but it's not just that. And it's not just that his grandfather was a four-star admiral in the U.S. Navy, or that both of them had middle names of Sydney. And how weird is that? (laughs) His grandfather was the first McCain man, and the McCains have been fighting wars since, like, 2000 B.C. on all sides of his families. For good and ill, that's what they do. His kids unlike Dick Cheney's kids, although I don't think Dick Cheney has any boys necessarily, but unlike a lot of people's kids, they're fighting in, um, they're fighting in Iraq. That's what the McCain men do. Anyways, but not only were they, uh, his grandfather was the first one to go into the Navy, and he came into the Navy at a really interesting time when it went from being 
a couple of buckets of, of rust to the Great White Fleet. And this is a very conscious act by Teddy Roosevelt, who was the Secretary of Navy and then President, to ape the 19th century power of the world, which is Great Britain. They saw that Great Britain was able to exert its influence worldwide and keep the world safe for their own supremacy by the use of sea power. His, uh, McCain's father, was, his nickname was Mr. Sea Power. He would go around giving lectures about how if we don't drastically increase the size of our navy, we're going to not only lose to the Ruskies, but we're going to miss out on a great opportunity to project our power abroad. This is what McCain marinated in, never questioned for a second, the first 35 years of his life. It's a very expansionist idea of we will keep the world safe for democracy. It comes from all of perhaps the best intentions in the world, but that's what it is. Uh, if you, you know, call it benevolent imperialism, if you will. Neil Ferguson, who's a McCain advisor, and he writes to the Times, he has always said that America needs to understand it, that it is an empire and it needs a conscious imperial class. McCain would definitely be that guy. But then Vietnam happens. He's knocked off his game. So for first 35 years, chasing booze and broads and whatever, but he's doing the McCain family business of sort of benevolent empire. Boom. Vietnam, five years. Comes home, sees the country divided and traumatized. You're listening to Matt Welch, Editor-in-Chief for Reason Magazine, in a talk he calls Deconstructing McCain on Socalo Radio. This Tuesday, July 8th, Socalo presents Baby, I'm Bored, When Did Motherhood Become a Career and Is It a Professional Disaster? A conversation with Leslie Bennett and Meg Wolitzer, moderated by Megan Daum, Los Angeles Times columnist. In a lively and provocative discussion, these two writers, both mothers themselves, will talk about the complications and contradictions of having it all and the role that feminism does or doesn't play in the lives of contemporary women. On Monday, July 14th, Josh Kuhn speaks on the kidnapped country, violence, drugs, and the crisis of Mexican culture. L.A.-based writer and scholar Josh Kuhn visits Socalo to explore the current crisis in Mexico within the broader context of contemporary globalization, drawing on personal, cultural, and political sources, from testimonies of victims to local blog accounts to the drug ballads of popular songs. And on Sunday, July 27th, Sokolo travels to Shanghai with L.A. versus Shanghai, who is the art capital of the Pacific Rim, moderated by Xin Yun Ma, Dean of the USC School of Architecture. Admission to these and all Sokolo events is free, but reservations are recommended. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, SokoloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We'll return in a moment to Matt Welch, Editor-in-Chief for Reason Magazine, in a talk he calls Deconstructing McCain. Stay tuned to SoCalo Radio. Programming on 89.3 KPCC is supported by Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me's Paula Poundstone and her performance at the Wadsworth Theater on Saturday, July 12th. Tickets available at Ticketmaster.com. The Road Story is a treasured part of American literary history, but there's a twist in the new book, A Nuclear Family Vacation. Husband and wife journalists Nathan Hodge and Sharon Weinberger hit the road to travel to America's nuclear installations. I'm Larry Mantle. On our next Air Talk, Hodge and Weinberger talk with us about this trip across the country and what they learned along the way. Air Talk, weekday mornings at 10, here on 89.3 KPCC. Is the love affair with square footage growing cold? The nation's romance with mega houses is beginning to cool off, and in some places, home sizes have stopped growing. Why the breakup with five bedrooms, seven baths? I'm Pat Morrison, and who's number two? Another mini profile of someone on the VP shortlist, Florida's Republican Governor Charlie Crist, a potential McCain match made in heaven. That's here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. 
Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. It's the KPCC Virtual Yard Sale. Our membership department has put some recent fundraiser thank you gifts online. Go to kpcc.org, click on support, and have a look around. You'll find books, CDs, T-shirts, KPCC logo items, and much more, all at reduced membership amounts. Your membership matters, but you might as well get a bargain, too. Join at kpcc.org. And thanks. Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now it's back to Matt Welch, editor-in-chief for Reason Magazine, in a talk he calls Deconstructing McCain. If you read this book, it talks about his political career. He shows precious little interest in much of anything to do with certainly political philosophy and just kind of the hurly-burly of politics itself. The thing that he cares about is putting Vietnam behind us. That was the main effort of, of his politics for the first 20 or 25 years of his uh, civilian career. What does that mean? He put, he and uh, John Kerry and others held hearings in the early 1990s to put the POW MIA question behind us. There are questions whether, you know, that was the best hearing or science or whatnot. But the important thing for his character was, let's get that done, then we can establish diplomatic relations, and then we have a full ambassador who's a, a friend of McCain's, and I think an ex-POW as well. This is all taking place in the context of the 1990s, where at the beginning of the decade, and, and you know, when McCain's uh, political career started, he was now a realist. He had Vietnam syndrome. He was against Ronald Reagan's deployment of Marines to Beirut, He was against Bill Clinton's deployment to Haiti. He actually authored a resolution to bring the troops home from Somalia, which uh, violated his own sense of that he believes that the executive branch requires as much power as possible to wage wars and foreign policy. In 1994, describing Bosnia, uh, he said, you know, the worst thing that I can think of in the world right now, and 1994 is a bad year, is the idea of our boys in the country of Yugoslavia dying for anything. Yet, at the same time, he's reestablishing diplomatic relations with Vietnam, which happens in the mid-90s. We have the success in the first Gulf War, which he was very nervous about going in. He even at some point uh, said that we should never have a single U.S. soldier die just to keep Saudi Arabia intact, which is an interesting idea. And we also begin to have success in Yugoslavia. At least we're able to reverse the tide of killing. There's the Srebrenica massacre in, in 1995. A lot of people point to that as the turning point in McCain's sort of foreign policy uh, development. Meanwhile, a couple of other things coalesce all at the same time. He decides to write a book to impose meaning on his Vietnam experience for the first time in his life in uh, Faith of My Fathers. He also knows that he's running for president, something that he wanted to do and even talked about back when he was a prisoner of war. And Barry Goldwater, his sort of not mentor, but the guy that he wished liked him, because Goldwater never did really like McCain, dies. And at Goldwater's funeral, McCain uses, uh, for the first time in his career, the elocution that uh, the way to become great citizens is to serve a cause greater than yourself. This was the theme of Faith of My Fathers. He suddenly, for the first time, he hadn't really talked about it in this way before, but as he's writing this in 97 and 98, describes his Vietnam experience as a redemption tale. That first half of the book that I was telling you about, which is great fun, uh, he's, he's dating Marie, the flame of Florida, and he's chasing heiresses in Brazil and crashing planes and you know doing stuff we'd all like to do. He describes that as, well... It was fun, etc., but when I went into prison in Hanoi, I thought that willful individualism was the ticket to glory, that all glory was self-glory, that egotism, narcissism, and those of you who've read the big blue book of Alcoholics and Anonymous will start to recognize some of the language here. These are the enemies. And he only found out when he was broken in Vietnam, as all POWs, with one or two exceptions, were broken at some point, and Everyone in this room would break, and I certainly would break in about 10 seconds. When he broke, the lesson that he took out of it was my willful individualism, my selfishness, my narcissism reached its ceiling. 
It was a ceiling on my greatness. And it was only afterwards when he was at his lowest of the lows that he realized that it was faith in a greater cause, a cause greater than yourself, a higher collective of U.S. nationalism that could bring him back to life and that became the object of his intentions with the government. It's a very stirring and interesting story. This all happens in 97, 98. It's pretty interesting, a collection of things. What else happens? He goes from the guy who in 1994 says, the worst thing that I can imagine is our boys in the former Yugoslavia, to the guy in 1999 who says that uh, not only do we need to support President Clinton's bombing of Kosovo, which is an, an intervention, by the way, which had much less, I mean, much less international and legal justification than the invasion of Iraq ever did. We need to not only support the bombing, but it's going to be a catastrophe unless we don't get the maximum number of U.S. boots on the ground. Suddenly, he was applying the Powell doctrine of overwhelming force, but without the Powell skepticism about the use of force. Around this time, 1999, he delivered a speech that I uh, encourage all of you to read Uh, It's still chilling all of these years later um, at Kansas State University, in which he unveiled a doctrine that he called rogue state rollback. Uh, Rollback is an interesting phrase. It was uh, all the rage in the 50s. Serious conservatives who thought Eisenhower was a big sellout wanted uh, the U.S. to roll back communist Russia and or the Communist Soviet Union, and uh, everywhere they saw communism roll that back. Uh, McCain, in 1999, said that anywhere we see an authoritarian dictator, and he named Iraq, Iran, Syria, North Korea, Burma, other countries, we should be supporting the freedom fighters and the insurgents, and when they inevitably get cracked down, we need to back that up with U.S. force. Anytime we make a threat, we need to back that up with maximum force. He lamented in this speech that we didn't get into a war with North Korea when we had the opportunity in 1994. It's a very expansionist idea about the projection of U.S. power. And it is a a speech and a doctrine that we all recognize three years later when Bush came up with the doctrine of preemptive war. Since that moment, since 98-99, McCain has been a consistent interventionist and reverting, in my analysis of it, to the person that he was growing up basically. Uh, at the end of Faith in My Fathers, it's a moment when uh, I didn't really recognize the significance when I first read it, but when I listened to the books on tape, when his voice kind of like gets into it at the parts that he writes instead of Mark Salter, his co-writer, he talked about how Vietnam shook the country. It made us doubt ourselves and doubt the use of American power abroad. Thankfully, those days are behind us, and now we can go forward. That is where McCain is today. Anywhere you see analysis of his foreign policy that doesn't take that into account, take it with a dose of skepticism. Especially now, as I had mentioned, he has this huge challenge of trying to keep this room, in particular, a bunch of Democrats and independents. You know, there's not, not any Republicans in here. But uh, he needs to keep this room believing that because his heart is in the right place, because he is, in uh, Michael Lewis's famous words, one of us. There's actually a great... Uh, uh, critique of the fact that the national journalists loved McCain in the 90s and local journalists in Arizona all hated his guts because they'd been tangling with him and, and uh, been the recipients of a lot of McCain outbursts. And uh, Michael Lewis said, well, I don't know why you'd think the Arizona journalists would know him better. I mean, McCain's from Washington. He's one of us. But because people think that they are going to give him the benefit of the doubt and he's going to be spending the next six to seven months maintaining a foreign policy team led by a guy who started the Committee to Liberate Iraq, Randy Scheunemann, marinating in this sort of national greatness conservatism, which is a explicitly anti-isolationist, anti-libertarian strain of conservatism, while not getting called on it because he needs your vote. It's an interesting little conundrum. And with that, I think I will stop. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, more interesting questions about domestic policy and other things. But I just wanted to leave you with a sense of how the game is going to be played from here on out, especially as regards his foreign policy. You've been listening to Matt Welch, Editor-in-Chief for Reason Magazine. Now the Sokolo audience asks the questions. What, what can we forecast or what can we think about what he might want to do or react to uh, Iran? When all else fails, read his lips. And what he said is that the only thing that he can imagine worse than a military strike against Iran, however you pronounce it, uh, is uh, a nuclear-armed Iran, which is a beautiful McCain way of saying, uh, as he did 
at his L.A. speech and in his uh, rogue state rollback speech alike. I know war. I hate war. I'd be totally reluctant to start a war. Meanwhile, we need to roll back these regimes in eight different countries. And, I mean, in, in the New York Times piece about him, he begins with this preamble, like, I can't believe people are describing me as a warmonger, etc. It's really infuriating. And later on, the journalists ask him, well, what about, you know, there are authoritarian dictators in Burma, certainly, which is a country that he's really, McCain's really keyed on, and Zimbabwe. Should we go in there and, uh, and you know, rogue state roll back those states? And McCain's answer wasn't, no, that's not in the national interest. His answer was, well, I'm afraid it'd be really hard to convince the American people to, uh, to support that in Burma, as justified as it might be. That's where his mind is at. On Iran specifically, McCain's running. In 2000, he ran on the transcendent issue. It's one of his favorite phrases. He's used it to describe all kinds of things that are just not transcendent. But in 2000, his signature transcendent issue was the iron triangle of lobbyists and donors and politicians. We're going to break it. We're going to pass this legislation. Here we go. And then we're going to unleash a Teddy Roosevelt-style wave of reform against the malefactors of great wealth and whatever. Well, he got what he wanted. Didn't work. Doesn't talk about it. The Republican base hate him for it, or you know, certain sectors of him hate him for it. This time around, his transcendent issue is the global fight against Islamic extremism. That is what he is running on. Uh, in many ways, that's the, that's the greatness of this uh, election campaign, because Obama is running specifically against that, and McCain's running for it. So it's going to be a real choice. But he won't allow a nuclear-armed Iran. He won't. If no one else is going to wipe him out, take him out in some way, he'll do it. I have, of that, I have zero doubt. And it's not an accident that he's singing Beach Boy songs off-key and that he's uh, making these kind of uh, belligerent statements. Uh, yes, my name is Ivan Salas, and I know that McCain uh, was involved with Kennedy in the McCain-Kennedy Bill for Immigration Reform. And my question to you is, uh, in your analysis or your belief, was he in support of the bill or one of the co-authors because he is a compassionate Republican or because he cares about immigrants, or does he care more about business interests, or was it entirely politically motivated? I think that he is genuinely moved and outraged at displays of racism and immigrant bashing. One of his roommates at the uh, Naval Academy was a Mexican-American, Filipino-American, I forget. I think he was a Mexican-American. And he saw the way that he was taunted. I mean, the Naval Academy is a pretty brutal place, much less brutal than it used to be. Everyone gets hazed. If you have dark skin, you're going to get hazed in a different way. McCain stuck up for that guy time and time again. Uh, he gives great speeches, some of the best you'll, you'll uh, read or hear or see, talking about people who were illegal immigrants who signed up for the war and served with honor and distinction, became citizens on the battlefield. Uh, he participates in swearing-in ceremonies for these people. He is allergic to racism in, in a very tangible way. I think that his approach towards this was in many ways a reaction against what he, I think, correctly identified as a rising anti-immigration tide in the, in the country. McCain is like an editorial page of a newspaper. Uh, he doesn't necessarily have a coherent philosophical take on the world's events, but he sees something bad, must fix something. It's like cookie monster politics. Uh, so, uh, and I, of course, don't mean the LA Times in that. I honestly don't. The LA Times has actually a, uh, a coherent uh, political philosophy that you can read online that uh, I had a hand in, uh, in like, a, you know, typing one letter in. But, you know, it's, it's, or it's more like the journalist idea. You know, journalists don't think in terms of political philosophy. They just think of, that's a problem, got to fix the problem. So I think he saw immigration as problem. It's obviously sort of broken. There's a lot of uh, illegals here. People are upset about it. Let's fix the problem. As often happens in McCain reforms, by the time it the sausage was made, that was an ugly, ugly bill. And, uh, and it would have done all kinds of things that would make me scream and go limp, not least of which is that it would force everybody in this room to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're an American citizen if you expect to ever collect another paycheck, which is not something that traditionally Americans have been very happy to do, and I certainly wouldn't be very happy to do. That issue almost sunk his candidacy for sure in 2007, and the McCain-Kennedy bill became the John Kyle Kennedy bill. He's the other senator in Arizona. Interestingly enough, kind of an anti-immigrant or like an immigrant bashing senator. He had just won re-election on a kind of close the border uh, thing. And McCain's like, look, hot potato, you take it. And that was one of many reasons why the reform never passed, because it missed McCain's active involvement. He was able to, when he was 
uh, actively involved in it to rally a lot of support and to bring Republicans and to kind of manage it because he was out campaigning and getting hammered on it and had to distance himself from it was one of many reasons why it didn't pass. Adam Long. So if, if he wins, what is a McCain presidency going to look like? And specifically, how are all these kind of independent Democratic people that supported him, how are they going to be surprised by what actually happens when he gets elected president? That's a good question. I think that one thing that he would do that I would love is that he would veto the hell out of things. It's a terrible year for Republicans, as the population in this room attests, if nothing else. They're going to lose ground in the Senate. They're going to lose a lot of ground in the House. So he's going to be dealing with a, not hostile, but certainly not Republican Congress. He'll work with them on global warming legislation. Uh, So a lot of the independent uh, Democrat types might like that. I fear for what that reform will look like. He's a big cap-and-trader, and and as the LA Times has taught me, cap-and-trade doesn't work. And, you know, I just fear some of his reforms in general. But he would definitely work with that. Veto a lot of uh, pork and earmarks. He's got a terrific record on that. Not totally unblemished, but terrific. He would, I think, continue this very aggressive, bellicose foreign policy to a greater degree, and one that he's believed in and has marinated in his whole life instead of being converted to it in the wake of a catastrophe. So to the extent of which people don't want us to always be on the brink of something new with somebody else, they are probably going to be a little bit disconcerted. On the other hand, you know, he would close Guantanamo. He would do some, uh, make some sort of tangible, even if symbolic, uh, steps that are like post-Bush. He just said in, his, his, in the year 2013 speech, which is not nearly as good as Zager and Evans' original, he said that uh, he will not uh, issue signing statements on his bills, which is a little tweak that Bush has done to kind of invoke presidential authority that wasn't really necessarily there. So in some symbolic ways, I think he would please a lot of people and be kind of interesting and work with Democrats. I think on some things that they care about a lot, they're going to be disillusioned quickly. Thank you, everybody. You've just heard Matt Welch, editor-in-chief for Reason Magazine, in a talk he calls Deconstructing McCain. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C. A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for Socolo Radio is Peter Stenshold. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. The Road Story is a...